This is your go-to podcast dedicated to getting the exclusive scoop from the industry's top influencers that are helping to shape the cybersecurity, audit, and IT governance landscape. Tune in as we dig deep and learn their motivators, explore their industry journey, and investigate their ideas and predictions on what the future holds. This is Isaka's CyberPros. Welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. I'm John Brand with Isaka. Uh, I fell in my new role of Director of Professional Practices and Innovation here. Uh, scope increase beyond just the InfoSec portfolio. Super excited about some of the things that we're working on. Uh, new responsibilities. Uh, I've got privacy, the IT domain, emerging tech, risk as well. Uh, I really just think that it's going to it's going to help us better align and capitalize on a tremendously talented team that I have here. This first episode of the year, you know, we're going to shift things up a little bit. You know, not only are we going to be interviewing people, but in the past, I told you, um, I want to recap industry news and stuff. And that's going to be what we do today because there's just there's some stories here to kind of recap, talk about them. Uh, and again, welcome your feedback on this as to uh, what's you know, what's happening out there. Before we get into that, though, I really huge shout out. Thank you to the Isaka family, you know, our loyal members, uh, customers and everything. I recently just penned a column uh, titled Finding Calm Amid Chaos, Improving Work-Life Balance. And let me tell you, it's been so well received, both inside and outside of the company. I am just absolutely humbled at the outpouring of support and people that just where the message resonated it. And that's what this is all about here. None of us are on an Island. This is truly, you know, this is a team effort, right? Like none of us have all the answers or whatnot. And, and the only way we're going to combat all the challenges with technology and uh, specifically security and privacy related things is really to leverage uh, lessons learned, work together, be creative and whatnot. So the first article uh, I'm going to touch on here is, came out from CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency here in the United States. And uh, the article was titled, CISA Sees No Significant Arm from Log4j Flaws But Worries About Future Attacks. And this particular flaw has just taken over the airwaves, and rightfully so. It's being coined like the biggest issue that we've had because it just permeates all aspects of industry and everything. So it's promising on one hand that they'll come out and say that, you know, they haven't seen any widespread use of it for severe harm. And uh, particularly, they've said that they can't rule out that adversaries haven't already used it to target machines silently, right? So basically to establish a foothold and potentially do something down the road. Um, and that what they're seeing right now is, quote unquote, low level activities. Now, take that for what it's worth. It's one agency reporting. They, they surely have, uh, they, there's been an increase in uh, the responsibilities, their authorities uh, and whatnot. But to think that any arm of the government has got a really holistic picture here is probably just a little short-sighted here. So I think my takeaway here is don't let your guard down. For all the federal agencies that you're under a mandate to get things done, continue to do that. For all your uh, private sector companies, equally important, right? Just because you're not mandated to report 
doesn't mean it's not important. And, and that's one of the things CISA actually called out here, specifically that they think they're saying the lack of incident reporting requirement is a handicap. And that's just been a point of contention um, with the last legislative uh, you know, budget package that went through there. There was a requirement and ended up being dropped at the 11th hour. I don't think there's any perfect answers there. I, I think in a lot of regards, I think a lot of private businesses, they're just not really, there's regulations and whatnot, but there's this cost of doing business that the more led, more laws, more regulations they need to abide by and whatnot, it increases the scope, you know, the cost of business. Uh, it might actually disadvantage them on contracts, especially with your smaller to medium businesses that just don't have robust staffs to be able to do this growing list of requirements that's out there. So I don't think this is going away. Uh, ultimately, it, be, it comes down to where does private industry come to this point where they feel comfortable sharing some kind of sanitized data to get it back? at least through the deliberations and some of the articles I had read in the past here was the government wants the information. The government is always really willing to reciprocate on the backside. And, and having been a member of the intelligence community for 20 years and everything, just about everything that we did was classified it's to some extent. So it's not a perfect relationship. Um, we can do better. You know, these public-private partnerships are going to be really powerful moving forward, but it really just becomes almost one of those things that campaigns see something, say something, right, when it comes to just like, you know, trafficking or whatnot. Equally applies here in the technology space. I think that, um, you know, where these things like the information share and analysis centers come into play, they're really good as kind of like think tanks, kind of focus on industry or whatnot to do some sharing at that point. Uh, but it, I think as soon as we levy a reporting requirement, you basically, we start to water a couple things down. And, and we're going to use that as a segue to the next article um, that one of my teammates highlighted for me to, to talk about today here was, and it's titled Breach Response Shift, More Lawyers, Less Cyber Insurance Coverage, right? And this was an interesting article here because cyber insurance is, some people think it's this panacea that's just going to solve all of our issues or whatnot. And it couldn't be further from the truth. It, and some of the things that have been happening, at least at the latter part of 2021, right, is that the insurance brokers are increasingly dropping their requirements, you know, and specifying a higher level of readiness. Let's say, you know, cyber hygiene or, or whatnot, the minimum standard of things you need to do to even be covered. And that's fine. That's actually a good thing, right? Because at the end of the day, it's the low hanging fruit that is easy to, to capitalize on. Bad actors, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of resources, you know, there's no long campaigns to try to to go after that. So it becomes a low risk, high reward type activity. So the better job we're all doing, kind of raising that minimum standard, theoretically, we're making it more expensive for bad actors. And that's the name of the game here. We're never going to totally mitigate all your security stuff out there. Cybersecurity is technical risk. It's mitigating that. It's not, we're not never going to eliminate it because you, we just, we don't know what you don't know. And something that's not vulnerable today might be tomorrow. 
But coming back to this article here, they talk about the insurance firms are seeing thousands of cyber breaches handled by outside attorneys. And this throws an, an interesting debate here between, you know, some academic researchers, you know, in the in the legal space. Their belief is that then that data is going to be subject to attorney-client privilege and not be admissible. Um, conversely, there's some investigative firms that are saying that, listen, at the end of the day, with all these growing regulations, legal counsel needs to be involved. And I, I think it's just the lens by which we look at this. So I'm not saying lawyers shouldn't be involved here. And, and truthfully, right, to make sure that you're uh, doing all the types of things that you should be doing. But from a practical perspective, when you're designing your incident response plans and you are developing your pre-planned responses, you should have taken all those regulatory things into consideration. I understand it's a little easier said than done, which is just so much of this space, right? But at the end of the day, that's where all of those things are captured. You want to have those buckets. You don't want to be sifting through, oh, what do I do now when the bad thing, when the inevitable happens? Because cyber breaches are going to happen. Bad actors are going to continue to target networks. It's just a matter of when. That was really an interesting thing here. You know, there are skeptics of, of cyber insurance to begin with, and, and I largely put myself in that camp right now um, because, again, tied back to this article here, you know, they talk about that cases of malicious breaches and unintentional disclosure, each category increased 18% year after year. That's a nominal increase. Not surprising, Cyber extortion ransomware jumped nearly 150%. No one should be surprised by that. We've seen all the news stories and whatnot. It's something to be aware of. The podcast and the, and the other people that I'm following, right, That uh, especially because you want to hear from the uh, litigators who specialize in this. You know, those law firms that specialize in cyber breaches, they've got unique perspectives, the brokers are using data to basically refine rates. That's all good. But the cost of the policy versus the payout, that's really where the rub is in those the conditions that they put in the policy. You really need to make sure you understand what's in scope and what's out of scope. Next article uh, you know, we're going to touch on here is titled, Fishing in Organizations, Findings from a Large Scale and Long-Term Study. And a colleague of mine, you know, is fishing simulations and, uh, and employee readiness is near and dear to him. And he was actually pretty interested in this story. And I, too, is there's not and we don't have enough academic research. These longitudinal studies are really the things for us to be tracking year after year. And, and I remember when I was completing my master's program, it was just a struggle to find that kind of data that's out there. Cause just a lot of the stuff that's out there is industry uh, sponsored or generated. And, and unless in that case, the bias could potentially come into play here. So it was pretty good to see that they did this. A couple takeaways was that uh, embedded video training simulations and emails was not effective in reducing click rates. Those of you that are in, uh, you know, in, in your uh, security roles or whatnot, and uh, and I think back to a prior role uh, as a security manager, it was a similar thing, right? You had those repeat offenders and whatnot, and oftentimes you're going to 
kind of Pareto's law comes into play, right? The 80-20 law where you're going to spend 80% of the time on 20% of the people. And, and maybe that percentage changes a little bit, but those repeat offenders are the ones who are going to need a little bit one-on-one attention to kind of figure out what's going on, though. The other takeaway about that, though, was that computer use was actually a bigger predictor for vulnerability, efficient vulnerability, than age, gender, education, or vocation. What that means is the more time you're on the computer, the more likely you're apt to be in that group of, you know, one-time, multiple-time fishing victim here. That puts middle managers right there in the crosshairs. And I think back to my prior role Senior leadership historically, for at least it was my experience when, when I was managing that large enterprise, they were the largest offender there. And for what, you know, for different reasons. And I do believe that in the years since then, uh, we've done a better job. I think that, you know, board outlooks, executive uh, guidance and executive direction, that's all kind of helped to, to see a knowledge. But there has historically always been this thing where when I was in the military, they said rank has its privilege, right? And, and the more senior you are in the company, the more latitude you just tend to get. And that's really where, boy, that's your opportunity to model the best behavior from the top down, right? Because those employees at the lower levels, they're watching everything we're doing. You know, if you're in a manager or a leadership position, boy, all eyes are on you. It's that the magnifying glass or whatnot. So it's that opportunity there to just kind of make sure you're doing the right thing, talk about it, have humility. If you fall victim, talk about it. They're teaching moments. Again, nothing, you know, humans, we're fallible, right? At the end of the day, and that's why social and engineering remains a powerful tool for bad actors to get a foothold. Another takeaway here is the research validates that banners and warnings work. And again, it's those warning banners when you log into a system. There's these add-ons here into your email clients and whatnot to kind of help draw attention to things. And again, it's not to, to rely on it. It's to augment the training there because there really is this psychological component of this uh, that's also powerful in curbing behavior and increasing overall organizational maturity and readiness. Uh, the last thing that, that was you know talked about there was uh, employees warning one another, right? That's one thing for your security team to come out and with that proverbial hammer, right? And you you did something wrong. So now we're going to give you some remedial training. But when and it, one employee goes, hey, listen, I just caught this fishing thing and kind of word of mouth and then just kind of heighten awareness because those people, uh, you know, those employees in these companies and the cubicles, you know, they, they're typically going to have more closer, closer relationships, right? A little bit more trustworthy. And again, it comes to, back to that, see something, say something, look out for one another. And however you get the message is not a bad thing. It's the fact of actually acting upon taking the right action, you know, reporting that efficient thing and basically to protect the company. Next thing here, um, article titled Augmented Reality, and it was, well, it was about augmented reality and virtual reality. And it was, what are the security and privacy risks of each here? A uh, paper by uh, Kaspersky, again, major security firm that's out there. At the end of the day, 
privacy considerations, you know, we, we try to separate security and privacy, but increasingly anymore, there's just not. And I, I think it's the lens by which you look at it. Privacy regulations are obviously gaining a lot of momentum across the globe. That's good stuff there. But there's some just legitimate takeaways here, right? And, and concerns with that is, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, AR and, and VR, they're, they're not the same. Virtual reality creates its own cyber environment. Augmented, you know, is basically adding to your real world. And, and each of these technologies are being used in a lot of different use cases and gaining momentum or whatnot. I'm not going to say, you know, we know that they're not foolproof. We know that there's actually some health issues, like people who are like really sensitive to like motion sickness and stuff like that. I think for our for for our listeners, our viewers. You know, the thing is, is that any system that could touch the network or collect data is of concern. And it's something that the enterprise has to be aware of. And this is no different. It's just a different instance of, you know, the, the old, your BYOD stuff, um, you know, people bringing in their devices, your Internet of Things, IoT, anything that's touching the network that's going to carry data. Touch data, process data, collect, it doesn't matter. That is something that the organization has, now has a responsibility for. So a lot of privacy issues there, you know, where the technology kind of came from. And, it, you know, and, and again, a lot of the gaming stuff was kind of like on the forefront to kind of push this forward. Just like any technology, security always, you know, is not normally uh, baked into at the design level there. So there's, there's all those legitimate concerns and things that we dealt with in decades past as systems came up and we learned more that you want to bake the security into it, make sure we design good stuff, privacy by design, all that is equally relevant here. So fingerprints, data collection, uh, a couple of interesting things here, right? Are, are these systems here, if they're capturing how your hands move, um, eye movement, um, how you talk about different things and, uh, you know, these physiological responses. When you look at things that are happening out there with like deep fakes, right? There's, there's already off-the-shelf software that could just, they're basically, you provide an image and are just kind of infusing it to different things. But now all of a sudden you have a capability where you're adding this level of realism. So if you know that a CEO is just like, it is, you've got certain mannerisms or whatnot, and you're kind of a way to be able to capture that and now use that as part of an attack vector, right? To just make messaging that much more real. So again, uh, something to be aware of to consider when you're exploring all avenues, exercises, tabletops. You know, when you're looking at your overall enterprise risk landscape, that threat landscape that you particularly face there, you have to consider all of these things. And maybe they're not entirely likely, but you can't totally dismiss them either. So uh, especially with, uh, I think that when you're the executives that have a lot more room larger audience, larger space, you know, bigger speaking or whatnot. Again, it's, we're giving this, if we don't protect that metadata there and some of the, uh, the components to this, there's an issue. And again, it's not always the technology people to where we're warehousing. And that's like anything else. So, 
you know, wireframes, data diagrams, all of that. Boy, you really have to mind map the heck out of your architecture to understand where all your touch points are and what's in and outside of your control and mitigate it as appropriately. Speaking of privacy, though, we're going to kick right over here. Um, here in the United States, we're going to talk about vehicle car data. Uh, and again, near and dear, I love tech, right? Um, my smartphone, absolutely love it. You know, Apple, you know, and now I went back to Apple. But before that, you know, Android Auto. Boy, who doesn't love to be able to stream their music, uh, you know, leverage uh, hands-free technologies? Here's the problem. You're connecting to a personal device here, and uh, a little bit of trivia here is that, you know, the Supreme Court previously ruled that a police warrant, uh, needed a warrant to search information that was on a mobile phone. However, there's an exception there that applies to vehicles. What I don't know what's going to happen is if this is going to get relitigated or not, because there's this nexus here. A vehicle here in the U.S., if you had a vehicle stop and there was probable cause, you could be searched, right? Part of that vehicle, now you have digital data. They're collecting GPS, stuff like that. You could go in there, you could dump it on the spot. So where is that stuff? And if it's, so if it's organic to the car, does it matter? Is that different if, the, if you're leveraging the automaker's GPS system as opposed to connecting your smartphone and using like Google Maps or Apple Maps or Waze or any of those things? Don't know, but it's one of these things that, you know, we're ahead of our skis here, so to speak, because the laws haven't really caught up with how data is being used, processed, and leveraged. So this is some, definitely an issue to kind of track. You know, I know there's going to be people out there, they're going to say, hey, listen, if you're not doing anything bad, then why do you care? Listen, at the end of the day, if we, if nothing else, People are fallible. Personal integrity, personal accountability are all-time lows from my perspective here in the United States. And at the end of the day, where those overarching framework is, you go back to the framing, an individual's right to privacy is real. It is a core tenant. So there is some of this stuff to, con to continue to monitor. Again, may not be something in everybody's wheelhouse, may not be something that they care about. Then again, it could be because, uh, you know, in this remote first workforce, people are traveling, people are handling their conversations over, over phone, uh, over their vehicles. They might be handling conference calls or whatnot. Again, Maybe you have certain requirements, company uh, proprietary information. Again, just something to keep tabs on. Very interesting privacy thing here that I that was passed to me. The last privacy thing we're going to talk about here, you know, and I'm just kind of cruising through some articles here on um, metaverse. Right, uh, article was uh, can privacy ever exist? Short answer: No. Boy, you know, the, the skeptics out there, and rightfully so, is we look at the Facebook, right? And they they stood up, they spun off this larger enterprise. They've paid a lot of hefty fines out there. They haven't really had a really good, uh, they don't have a good track record. I am increasingly skeptical of all technology conglomerates that are out there. They wield a lot of power. They're a great resource. But at the end of the day, they are about providing a service 
not necessarily the security and privacy, upholding security and privacy, which are, uh, they just vary by geography to begin with, right? So you can't dismiss that. So not a whole lot else I'm going to add to that article. Shifting gears here, though, um, just more of an awareness thing. Um, uh, I've spoke on this before. Workforce development is, is really my passion at the end of the day. Uh, a, a key component of that here is this thing that called the digital divide, which the COVID-19 pandemic just exploited the heck out of. Regardless where you are across the globe, there are pockets that are have got really good connectivity. There are many more that are just disadvantaged. At least here in the United States, there was a big funding, uh, you know, infrastructure bill that was passed last year, cost a lot of money. Part of that, though, was a historic investment of $65 billion to help close the digital divide there. So for any of you that are involved in local community initiatives, your consultants, you work for ISPs, especially those startups and you're working in rural parts, let me tell you, you need to go look at this thing. It's on, go to federalregister.gov is where they list all this stuff with these uh, you know, these RFPs that they're looking for stuff. Um, it's docket number 220105-0002 titled Infrastructure Investment in Jobs Act Implementation. Um, really what they're looking for is input and how to distribute more than $48 billion of that money. That's a lot of cheddar. That's a lot of access we can bring to people. And again, getting involved in our communities to help kind of shape that because this is our future. When we talk about the greater IT workforce and, you know, how many jobs exist there, this is where the problem starts, folks. The fact that we've got school districts, we've got companies, we've got countries whose governments are barely, they've got AOL type internet connectivity, right? For those of us old timers, it, you know, modem based stuff. It's just painful. I couldn't even imagine operating in it, but I lived in a rural community for, for uh, five years. It was a struggle to deal with them. And when you did have broadband, you paid through the nose and uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about whether, you know, technology, especially broadband is a human right or not. That's for others to debate, debate. But I'm a big proponent of we've got a lot of smart people out there, a lot of companies. They're looking to make a difference. There's a pot of money out here. If this is your wheelhouse. Go look for it. Try to get involved. And let's hope that the money gets spent in the right places because rural parts cover about 70 percent of the U.S. geography. That's a lot of stuff. With that, that's this week's episode. I really appreciate you tuning in. Always welcome your feedback. I'm John Brand on Isaka with CyberPros. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To listen to more podcasts from Isaka, please visit isaka.org slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for upcoming episodes.